All right, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are on part two of our comparison of Footloose and Purple Rain, and we are not going to waste any time. Let's dance! (laughs) (laughs) This is the sixth episode that we've done so far on our summer of 1984. It's been amazing to go through and just concentrate on one summer. Do you remember the first time you saw either one of these movies? Yes, I saw Footloose in the theater. I saw Footloose in the theater And as well. I think I saw uh, Purple Rain on HBO okay. when, I, when I didn't have permission to do so. Right. I can remember vividly seeing, I didn't see all of Purple Rain, but I, my brother was in high school at the time, and he goes over to this friend's house that a bunch of high school kids are going to watch the VHS copy of this mm-hmm. thing, and her little brother and I are banished to the upstairs, <laughs> and like, you you know, you guys are too young, you can't watch this, and so, of course, we go upstairs for about mm, seven minutes, and they're like, let's go sneak downstairs, and so we sneak downstairs, we crawl in the dark on our hands and knees under the chair that everybody's sitting on, you know, that somebody's sitting on there in the movie room. We sneak up, we see the TV, and it is the Lake Minnetonka scene. Well, for starters, you have to purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. And we get to see Apollonia's boobies, and we're like, our work here is done. <laughs> we did not watch the rest of the movie. We we're just like, let's get out of here before we're caught. We've we've gotten everything we needed to get for our radar movie. <laughs> Thank you. I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, Jason, before we get started, we have to acknowledge our executive producer today. Uh, we have a new Patreon subscriber, and he is our executive producer. That is Mr. Travis Lasley. Travis, thank you so much, man. We really, really appreciate it. He's one of those guys who's communicated to us over and over again on Facebook. We love having the conversations that we have with our Facebook members. Please, if you haven't signed up already, be sure and follow or like our Facebook page so that we can have fun with you too, man. It's a big happy family. That's right. Okay, D, we got another executive producer. This time it's Mr. Cameron Eckert, one of my college roommates. Cameron, thanks, man. When Cameron was in Egypt's land. (laughs) You know, I bet you never get tired of hearing that. I'm sure he's heard it before. <laughs> Cam, thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. He and I uh, talk regularly. We go over the episodes and he gives me input. Okay. And so I think that makes Cameron our first Canadian executive producer. Woohoo! Canadian A. Thank you. Dear listener, if you want to be an executive producer of one of our episodes, all you have to do is come to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Shirley podcast, and you can sign up for as little as a cup of coffee probably less than a cup of coffee these days especially in canada (laughs) (laughs) all right eh? hey poser let's talk about production on these movies so i mean we might as well jump into the lake minnetonka scene okay yeah let's back up just a second okay so filming started on purple rain halloween of 1983 okay the first scene in the movie is actually Prince and Apollonia riding around on the motorcycle, and you have the fall foliage of Minnesota. Funny part about that, it snowed the next day. Right, right. Hearing Apollonia talk about this in various parts, the severity of what happened is different, but basically her jumping in that water two or three times, afterwards, like she started to black out and the nurse believed she was going into hypothermia. And then apparently she was sick for some time and stayed at Prince's house 
And he like made her soup and took care of her while she got over the cold or flu or whatever pneumonia probably that she had from jumping in this ice cold water. The Lake Minnetonka scene, if you don't remember, Prince says that uh, he won't help her professionally because she couldn't pass initiation. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you got to purify yourself in the Lake Minnetonka. So she strips down. And jumps in. Now, that was shot in Minneapolis. Yes. They realized that they needed some close-ups and some dialogue that they then later shot in L.A. Yes. Not so cold over there. A little, little bit warmer. The interesting thing, when she stayed at Prince's house, uh-huh. she says, yeah, I slept in his bed and he was a perfect gentleman. Nothing happened. Which, okay. Which Prince are we talking what? about? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway. So, during the production of Purple Rain, yes. one of the things Prince did to get everybody ready for this is he gave everybody had to show up and do dance lessons. And acting classes. And acting classes. Yeah. Part of it was to get them better for the movie, and part of it was to get everybody in shape. Right. But there's uh, one person that uh, constantly skipped. Uh, who you would expect. Yeah. He was also high during most <laughs> of the filming of this movie. Yeah. Mr. Morse Day. Mr. Morse Day at the time. He's got one of the funniest bits. Like, he and Jerome have a lot of funny bits, but they do this bit that's very Abbott and Costello, who's on first, that's good. I enjoy that bit. They are the comic relief of this movie. Yeah, which they would are. be a very heavy movie without their comedy in it. But one of the important parts of the movie was, what are the songs that we're going to use, right? Sure. Prince gives Albert Magnoli this huge catalog of music, and he's like, okay, well, which of these do you want me to use? He goes, you pick. He's like, oh, wow. Okay. And so he's going through trying to find songs. And then they have this event that is now famous. Yes. It is the first time that Wendy Melvoin plays with the revolution. She starts the song and there are three songs from this live performance that end up in the album. But one of those songs is the song Purple Rain. That concert happened August 3rd, 1983. People don't realize this. I didn't realize it until I started researching this. The recordings of I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star, and Purple Rain are taken from that concert in 1983. Yeah. Now they produced them up. They add some strings and some things. But those are the live recordings from that concert. It was the first time they had ever performed Purple Rain <laughs> live. And it is the version you hear on the album. And one of the people in the crowd was Albert Magnoli. And he comes to Prince afterward and he says, I think that song Purple Rain is the key to our movie. And Prince says, okay, can we call the movie Purple Rain? He says, sure. That yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. Not only is it Wendy's first performance with the band, but it is the moment that the name of the movie and of course the name of the album are inspired. I think that, that that moment was, they caught lightning in a bottle, as you like to say. It was magic. Yeah, it was magic. And it makes for a great climactic part of the movie. Yeah. So apart from the Lake Minnetonka scene, the, to me, the most moving part of the movie is when Prince gives homage to his dad and you have the big climax of the Purple Rain at the end of the movie. You actually have Purple Rain and then he goes backstage and the, the crowd is just chanting and Jill is crying and they bring him back and he does, I would die for you and baby, I'm a star. All right. Okay. So here's the interesting thing about this. Okay. Yeah. Throughout the course of Purple Rain, they did such a great job of pacing. There is not any 10 minute span where there is not at least one song played, except for one part. There is a gap of 10 minutes. And in the middle of that, there's a sex scene. 
right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The original storyline as Prince had done it, as I mentioned before, mom and dad are already dead in this murder-suicide. And the end of his script ends with his suicide. Like he dies at the end of his storyline. And so that obviously has changed. I think largely because of our first time director here, who's like, this is not the right story. What you have is a guy who wonders, will I turn out like my dad? And that's why that unpleasant as the abuse scenes are, they're critical to the movie because he's realizing that he is becoming his dad. He is becoming this violent, abusive boyfriend, right? And he doesn't want to. He saves himself from becoming that. And that unlocks Another key, which is the fact that he's this kind of domineering, your music doesn't matter, Wendy and Lisa, nobody cares about you, I'm the star, I'm the key. Well, say what you will about Prince and his abilities, he did a great job acting in this movie. Yeah. He really, really did a great job. And from what I've read, he would watch himself every day on the dailies, watch it over and over again, figure out what his mistakes were. And they said like his improvement was obvious from beginning to end on his acting abilities. But then he's got this moment that he's got to go crazy and tear the stuff up. And that's when he comes across his father's music. This is the part that you're talking about. Before his dads were like that, his dad was like, that's the difference between you and me is you got to write your stuff down. I've got all mine right here. Well, then he finds out, well, no, his dad has been writing stuff down and that's he, he marries that with this song that Lisa and Wendy have been working on the whole movie. And that is the song that we're led to believe is Purple Rain. It's a great story arc. The building of the song, the, the climax is at the end. So here's the interesting thing. Yeah. That scene where he's talking to his dad and his dad is like, that's the difference between you and me. And you've got to write your music down. Yeah. It's an actual conversation that he and his dad had. His dad showed up, didn't know what he was. I mean, he just happened to show up on the day that they're filming that scene. And he realizes he's kind of walked into something. So he hides behind what he thinks is like safe place just so he can listen. And he hears the scene that he knows is a conversation that he and his son have had. Uh -huh. And then when the scene is over, Prince is obviously emotional and he walks around the corner right into his dad. And they have this moment of, wow, our life just became a scene in a movie. Yeah, for real. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. The interesting thing about his father and the suicide, the studio wasn't comfortable with a murder-suicide or really even a suicide. Yeah. And so Albert Magnolia is like, no problem. He won't die. Right. And I'm like, guy, I mean, he... He stuck a gun to his head and he didn't die. I mean, is that better? He missed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's a lousy shot. Harry, you're alive <laughs> and you're a terrible shot. <laughs> okay. Did you know that there is another sex scene in Purple Rain that has been deleted? Yeah. It's the Purple Rain sex scene. Like you actually got some purple yeah. rain. It was not at the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Right. Right. You have the illusion of the rain in the background and uh, maybe some lights or something that makes it look purple. Right. But apparently the scene was even more awkward and they just it just didn't really work. But you can see it at the beginning of the Windows Cry video. Uh -huh. There's actually a clip from it. Yeah. 
Here's the thing I want to talk about real quick. Okay. The sex scene between Prince and Apollonia. Yes. So they shot that scene three different ways. They shot a TV version, a PG version, mm-hmm. and an R version. Uh-huh. We get the R version. Uh-huh. But there, it's it's odd. It's just an odd scene. Well, I, I even texted you right after that scene as I was watching. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I do not remember the V grab that happens in this scene. The hands wander for sure. Yeah. But there's no nudity. Nope. Although you can pretty well see through her paintings. Okay. So I've got a couple of little interesting tidbits on production of Purple Rain. Okay. Yep. So Prince and his good buddy Morris Day, high school friends and bandmates. Yep. According to one of the guys in the time, Mr. Jellybean Johnson, they got in a fistfight on the set of Purple Rain. Oh, shoot. So as you said before, Morris Day had a substance abuse problem. Yeah. He would show up late. He would show up not at all. He would not go to dance lessons and just generally be a huge pain in the butt to everyone. Prince had enough of it one day, and apparently they got into it pretty good. Wow. So the scene where the time is doing Jungle Love... There's this really memorable part where the guys are dancing, like they're up on the balcony, and you've got them all dancing in synchronicity together. Yes. So that dance group was known as Game Boys, and they later, like three of those group of the group members, Tony Mosley, Kirk Johnson, and Damon Dixon, became members of Prince's band, The New Power Generation. They're also background dancers on Graffiti Bridge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not that's, a big, not, not a big, so big uh, not yeah. so much. Okay. Not so much. Morris Day says a total of 13 words to the kid. Yeah. You know how many of the words the kid says to Morris Day? That would be a goose egg. Zero. Zero. <laughs> One more thing. Yep. During the production, Albert Magnoli comes to Prince and he says, listen, I've got this music montage and I want a song that kind of encapsulates all of the drama from the movie. It just kind of carries us through all the emotions that the kid is going through. Right. You got problems with mom. You got problems with dad. You got problems with your girlfriend. You got problems with your band. Can you come up with something? So Prince is like, yeah, I think I can come up with something. The next day he comes back, two songs. One of them, When Doves Cry. Wow. Oh, you forgot the bass. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that when we go track by track. So one more thing. Yep. Just before Prince plays Beautiful Ones, when Morris Day is trying to pick up Apollonia, you remember where he leaves the girls and he goes and sits down at the table that Apollonia is at? Yes. All of his pickup lines are paraphrased lines from the Times songs. Comes oh, from right. Chili Sauce, comes from Ice Cream Castle, comes from Jungle Love and The Bird. What time is it? Yeah, that's actually, yeah, the title of their second album. <laughs> I heard that Albert Magnoli sat down with Morris Day and Jerome and said, all right, guys, here's what the script says. Uh-huh. Now, how would you say it? Right. And they would say, well, I would say this, you know, I would say that. That line, how's the family? That's Morris Day. Yeah. Okay, let's jump back over to Footloose. <laughs> talked about casting already, but let's talk about who gave the best performance, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got a lot of incredible actors. Uh, So you think uh, Kevin Bacon? Good, but I wouldn't say he's the best. John Lithgow? Mm, Again, excellent, but not not the best performance. Laurie Singer? Mm, No. What? Who who do you have? (laughs) Hey, listen, they all did a great job, including Chris Penn, Sarah Jessica Parker, Diane Weiss. They all did a great job. Uh-huh. But the person who gave the greatest performance in Footloose yeah. is the kid who falls asleep in church at the very beginning. 
<laughs> when his dad wakes him up, he looks like he wishes he were dead. Uh, that was a memorable moment. <laughs> There's not a better performance. That was for real, real stuff. Look, I've been in church a lot of times, <laughs> and I guarantee I've looked like that a lot of times, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about prep work that these guys did for their yeah. acting performances. Okay. So Kevin Bacon was 24 at the time that he was going to do this performance. And so he was like, am I still in touch with what high schoolers are doing? Right. And so he hit up the principal of a local high school and said, hey, I'd like to come, you know, check out your high school. And he had this plan that like he was going to be like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, trying to strut through the place and be cool and stuff and he ended up having an experience that was completely different than he expected yeah so he walked in like mr tough guy and realized pretty quickly this is very uncomfortable so he lowered his eyes lowered his head tried not to be noticed and felt very alone isolated even scared yeah he was wearing a tie like a skinny tie and <laughs> literally got made fun of for the skinny tie like the, the line in the movie hey nice tie it came from that experience and so it's really truly interesting because i think that frames up a much better movie if you've got a character who's like kind of having to duck his head and he wants to be cool but he's struggling i mean he's struggling throughout the beginning of this thing because he's unsure of himself which would make sense i mean moving yeah. with your mom to this new place where nobody knows you and you're getting hassled i mean you think you're cool but nobody else thinks you're cool right you're doing the stuff that was cool where you were from, but everybody here seems to think that that's the devil's music. I know. Hey, you know what? That that reminds me too. When they first explained to him that dancing is illegal, yeah, he's like, jump back. <laughs> <laughs> jump back. That was a term that Kevin Bacon actually brought to the script, right? <laughs> and they thought, all right, that's cool enough to leave in. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay, so it's interesting because John Lithgow kind of did the same thing on yeah. his own. So he wasn't raised in like a Christian household. It wasn't a part of his upbringing. So he wanted to know what it was like. And so he called a local minister there in the town that they were filming at and posed as someone who was having spiritual difficulties. And, you know, I've got questions. Can you help me out? And the guy was like, oh, of course, and met with him and talked with him for hours. And he said, I felt like a total snake in the grass because <laughs> this was just the nicest guy, really persuasive about Jesus and the, his love. And it was just like, I felt lower than low. But again, that's the perfect thing to inform his performance for this movie. Absolutely. I, I think that's awesome. That's super fascinating that both of those actors would probably have taken their role in a different direction had they not done those two things. Yeah, absolutely. So I can remember as a kid, I thought John Lithgow's character was just this awful, you know, tyrannical human being. But watching as an adult, I'm like, no, this guy is the guy who's like he's trying to do his best. He's trying hard to make things right and protect his flock because he's lost one of them. And the one that he lost was his own kid. Yeah. That's a huge, that's a huge deal. Yeah. And so when I go back and I look and I'm like, who's the hero? Well, you got two. You have two heroes in here, two guys who make character shifts. And so that Kevin Bacon going from the guy who's insecure and trying his best to, you know, 
be a part of something, finds this thing to latch onto, this cause to latch onto, and then he gets to stand up and talk in front of the entire town. And it's not something, you can tell it's not something that he enjoys. As a matter of fact, Kevin Bacon, the actor said, I really don't like public speaking. Like it was difficult for me to do that scene because I'm not used to talking in front of a large group of people like that. He broke out in hives. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of weird. I mean, he's a Broadway actor before this, but I guess, you know, the lights are down. You don't see people. You're just in the moment. But with this one, he's trying to talk to an entire crowd of people. And as for a lot of folks, it's really intimidating. But he, it's because of that. He gets that character shift where he's like, he finally gets to pound the table and say, this is wrong. And he stands up for something where he's been kind of beat down through the the beginning of the episode. And then you got John Lithgow who sees, you know, he's doing all he can to protect people. He's trying to stop what he sees as this menacing thing. But then he starts to realize at the book burning, right after he has this horrible encounter with his daughter in the church, he goes because they're burning books in front of the library and he sees that his flock has taken it too far, right? It's like, he's like, oh no, this is, you know, I've, what I meant for good has turned into something evil and I've got to, I got to change my perspective on this. That's really interesting that you say that. So for me, when you say, give me a movie that you had one perspective as a young person and that perspective has changed over the years. Footless is my number one example. Hey guys, if you love our podcast, be sure to catch another couple of great podcasts. One is the 30-something movie podcast starring Mr. John Reed. We got together with John and we decided to start a new podcast and we call that one Podcast Full of Kryptonite. Podcast Full of Kryptonite's a whole lot of fun. We cover the TV show Superman and Lois and we've got John Reed who knows more about Superman than I could ever know. It's amazing. The knowledge is so much that my family avoids me. so be sure and check that out check out 30 something movie podcast check out podcast full of kryptonite as a young person i'm like let the kids dance man absolutely and i i'm still like let the kids dance but let's not forget the pastor he lost his son in an accident yeah and he's lost and he's hurting and he doesn't want to lose his daughter as well and He's got the responsibility of his flock, like you said. And so it's it's complex. And, he, and he's trying to do the right thing for everyone. Right. And Ariel is a little bit off the rails. And she's standing on two racing cars going towards a semi. I, right. As a father, I would brown upon that behavior. You of know? course, yeah. And my daughter will tell you she's like that because her parents were too restrictive. <laughs> well, okay. and we all have something to learn. I, you know? And I mean, I can identify with that as how I felt when I was a kid too. You yeah. know, like you're, this is too much. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do things that are crazy just because I need to live life a little bit. Yep. And you mentioned the scene where Ren goes in front of the school board. Yeah. No, it's the public, it's the town council. It's the town council. Real life, real life Elmore City was the school board. By the way, Arla mentioned that Larry Kern, that preacher, actually looks like John Lithgow. Really? Yeah. I'd love to meet that guy. Yeah, me too. But anyway, uh, Dean Pitchford, I listened to the commentary. Dean Pitchford said that that scene was originally written as a more pound the table type of thing. Let us dance. Mm -hmm. This is our moment. We need this. Uh Uh-huh. But Kevin Bacon pulled back and it gave more gravitas and it was more like you could hear a pin drop type of thing. And he said that was the right thing. That was the right choice for that character. Absolutely. The insecurity that you can see and having to overcome that made it more compelling. And absolutely. And as a church going person, 
when you pull out scripture to aid you in your argument against a pastor, it's a little disarming. It's a powerful moment. It's definitely <laughs> a powerful moment. Okay, and I want to say one of the things since I went ahead and brought Arlen up. So just a couple of other little stories. He says he can remember there were some guys who were trying to break dance behind the school and cop came and told him if he, they didn't stop that they'd get arrested. Now, keep in mind, he's younger. Like he's he graduated in the late 80s, but this law was still a law up until 1992 in Elmore City. Wow. I mean, that's 12 years after they have their first prom, finally they changed the law to allow for public dancing. He said it was actually the second time that those guys had gotten caught. The first time they got caught was by the shop teacher and he just wailed on them with a paddle. (laughs) (laughs) Old school. Which again, only in the 80s, right? (laughs) That's awesome. Hey, you guys break it up. No more break dancing back here. Get the paddle out. Grab your ankles. So Kevin Bacon had to do some dancing. He had to do some gymnastics. Yep. He actually said that during the rage dance, okay, let's let's talk about the rage dance for okay. a second. So Ren finally gets tired of it. He's had enough. So he goes to this warehouse and he rage dances, right? And he, and he smokes and he drinks and he dances, right? This is the rebellious act and it's a little bit, it's, I mean, it's a lot corny. It's a lot cheesy. It's, it is a little bit, yep. But the music is great. And so right. we go along with it. Absolutely. But during that scene, I think there were five total people involved, including Kevin Bacon. Yep. So you have a gymnast, you have like a ballet dancer, you have Kevin Bacon, you have a dance. And so there's five people involved in that scene. Yep. And Kevin Bacon wanted to do it all himself. Mm-hmm. And they had to kind of, say Kevin you're pretty good at a bunch of things but this isn't what we want right so let's go someplace dark (laughs) and put your face in the shadow that's it and by your face we mean the other guy (laughs) (laughs) one of the guys was Chuck Gaylord who is Mitch Gaylord's brother Mitch Gaylord being the Olympic like 1984 Olympic gymnast yeah starred in the movie American Anthem 1986 wow look at you with your knowledge that boom Okay, let's talk about the tractor scene. Okay. First of all, you have Ren on a tractor. He has no idea how to drive a tractor. And they give him the crash course of like, okay, here's the clutch. Here's the steering wheel. That's a great scene <laughs> where, where Chris Penn keeps repeating everything that the other guy is saying. It's hysterical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's the clutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah here's the clutch. clutch. Yeah. <laughs> and his shoelace gets caught on the, the accelerator. Right. I mean, this movie is rebel without a cause, except that he has a cause now, right? Yeah. It's a throwback to the old James Dean thing. And of course, just like the old James Dean thing, they've got a they've got a race, a chicken race, right? And so you've got this awesome moment where it's if anybody studied game theory, this is a really interesting kind of dynamic that you gotta look at because somebody's gotta give. Somebody has to give in this game. And it turns out Ren is the one that gives. Ren, Ren tries to give about 10 times. Yeah. He he, he gives like 10 seconds in. Yeah. Like, okay, okay. That now, guy's like 100 <laughs> feet from me. So I'm going to go ahead and, oh, shoot. My foot's stuck. Yeah. My shoelace is stuck around the accelerator. And then he finally is like, okay, here it comes. I can't. 
get off. And so now my only option is to just keep going forward and not like go off the rails into the ditch. And I wondered because like before when I had watched it, I'm like, how does he get his shoelace off so easily afterwards when he finally stops and it starts again and it stops again, you can see him yank his foot really hard. I, I can give that up as he's just finally like, I'm ripping this thing off. And then he starts cheering like he's the hero and didn't. Yeah. Holding, yeah. Out, holding out for the hero. And you overlay it with the great Bonnie Tyler song, Holding oh, Out for a Hero. It is a great scene. It's funny, it's entertaining, and it's thrilling. Totally. Totally. Great scene. One of the best in the movie. By the way, I don't know if we talked about this. All this was filmed in Utah. Yeah, he went to, Kevin Bacon went to a high school in Utah, John Lithgow saw a preacher in Utah, and the tractor race was in Utah. Yeah, it's Utah County, Utah. I mean, yeah. it's like the heart of Utah. Yeah. And when they talked to Herbert Ross, Dean Pitchford was like, well, I was kind of thinking like the wheat fields of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And Herbert Ross is like, listen, trust me, when there's nothing on the screen, but there's mountains in the background, it's more interesting to look at. Just, just go with me on this. And they're like, okay. Yeah. I mean, you cannot beat the wheat fields in northern Oklahoma whenever it's June harvest time. That's oh, wonderful. It's like golden oceans out there. Yeah. But that's only for about a month out of the year. Yeah. So not not a good time to try to do that. One more thing I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. The dance montage with Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn. where he's teaching him how to dance. So there's this whole dance montage set to Let's Hear It For The Boy by Denise Williams. And Kevin Bacon is taking Chris Penn under his wing and he's teaching him how to dance in preparation for the prom. It's interesting because they they scatter it around and it's it's in the gym, it's at the farm, it's in fields, it's at the football field, it's all over the place. With the little girls. Right. So what they did was while they were filming it, the last scene of every day on the shooting schedule was the dance scene. And so Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn would dance. Here's the interesting thing. The song that they had was not Let's Hear It For The Boy. Okay. It was one of the original songs that they have, which we'll talk about when we go track by track next week. But when they would do their dancing, they would last scene of every day, and then they cobbled this montage together. And that's why it's really cool to see a ton of different locations and they're dancing. Sounds great. Okay. Okay, let's jump back over to the performances in Purple Rain. Okay. We talked before, all of the characters were pretty much, I mean, they were based on their real life counterparts, right? Right. But you've got one critical character that is an actor that came from the Mod Squad, Clarence Williams III. He is a guy who is a driving force through this whole movie, right? Right. So it's not a complicated script, right? It's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy realizes that he's enacting the abusive behavior of his father and mother and realizes he should change and then also realizes that he's got this commonality with his father boy gets girl back 
Boy plays amazing song, wins girl back. That's right. Right. <laughs> so at that point, you know the scene where he's talking to Prince and he's at he's talking to the kid and he's at the end of his rope and he asks him about having a girlfriend. Yeah. And he's like, you love her? He's like, I don't know. You know, I don't know yet. Right. And he's like, don't ever get married. It was so powerful that Albert Magnoli said they wept as they watched them perform the scene. Strong, strong performance. And it, again, the reason I say he's the driving force is because of that change that has to occur in the kid. Like he doesn't want to be like his father. He doesn't want to be like his mother. But then he, as time goes on, he sees himself becoming them, which I think was the idea from the beginning. When Prince first wrote these words down on notebook paper, that was the whole notion was that he had become his mother and had become his father. And that's why he was wanted to play those parts himself in flashback scenes. But obviously the way they did it was much better than that idea, but he's got to make that change. Did I tell you that like the end of the movie that Prince wrote, he commits suicide. Like that's the end of that movie. <laughs> like he puts in his mom's earrings and he goes ahead and commits suicide. So thank goodness that they didn't do it that way. This was not, this could not be a downer movie with the music that you have. No, no. They, thank you for not making that choice. Right. By the way, that advice, don't ever get married. Yeah. That's actual advice from Prince's dad to Prince as a young man. It, it is very biographical, this movie. Yep. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you know this, uh, and I don't want to get too much into music. We're talking pretty strictly about movie. Right. But when Prince and Albert Magnoli were working on Purple Rain, yeah. Prince gave him a hundred songs to choose from. One of those songs that was not in that hundred, Purple Rain. Right. Another one, When Doves Cry. Right. All of, I mean, those two and one other that made it onto the soundtrack all came through the live performance in 1983. Yep. August when, 3rd, 1983. Wendy first performance. It was, like I said last time, Albert was in the crowd when they did that performance. And when he heard Purple Rain, that was what him made him go to him and say, I would really like to make this the key song in the movie. It's so powerful. And Prince said, can we name the movie Purple Rain? Sounds great. Let's do it. And yeah. what a great name. <laughs> it's great. That's great. The scene where Prince's dad is playing the piano. Yep. And he, they're having this discussion about, that's the difference between you and me. I don't have to write my songs down. Uh -huh. That piano, piece of piano music, it's actually being played by Prince. Right. And it ends up in one of Prince's songs. It's like the it's middle part. It's in Computer Blue. It's so hard not to talk about the music when the movie is all about the music. I know, I know. Did you know that Purple Rain was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Well, it's an incredible movie. <laughs> <laughs> we will get into that. We will get into that. You know who the only guy who doesn't speak in the movie from the revolution? Is it Mark Brown? Mark Brown. Brown Mark. <laughs> what an unfortunate nickname. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the reception and the success of these movies. Right. So both of these movies, the album came out before the movie. Right. And that's huge, particularly in Purple Rain's instance. I would say it's huge in Footloose's instance as well. I okay. Mean, because, I mean... If you don't know those songs already, they're new songs when you're watching a movie and they're not as impactful. Well, that's true. Footloose, the album, did so well that people would buy the album having never seen the movie before. Yep. The fact that it was getting played on the radio had a huge impact. I mean, it's like we talked about with Huey Lewis. 
Power of Love was the number one song the week that Back to the Future came out. The very first cool scene that we see is him skateboarding behind the cars and that music is what's playing in the background. And so it's perfect that the album comes out before and everybody's familiar with these and they are dancing along with those guys. Let's talk about the original ending of Phyllis before we... Oh yeah, okay. We kind of... It goes along with what you were talking about, the success. The original ending was they got the council to agree to let them have a dance. Yes. And the director, his quote was, if you spend the whole movie trying to get the car, when they give you the keys to the car, you actually possess the car. Right. And that's the end of the story. So they screened it with, basically they arrive at the prom and that's the end. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So Dean Pitchford says, guys, I think we need to add a song here and let them dance and let the audience participate in the dance absolutely and so when they originally screened it with the just arriving at the prom and that's the end of the movie audiences did not like the movie but you throw in the kenny loggins go crazy footloose song and you have the break dancers and you have kevin bacon come in let's dance and they dancing and you have the credits and all that stuff you went into bill cosby a little bit (laughs) (laughs) and the dancing (laughs) with the shoes and stuff (laughs) but it went from a movie that was disliked uh-huh. to a movie that was a huge smash because the audience wanted to party with the cast. I mean, it's like you said, if you're spending the whole movie trying to get the car and you end with them getting the keys, the audience is like going to be, where's the car? I want to see the car. I want to go for a ride Let's- in the car. That's the whole point of the whole movie. And you also had to have some sort of resolution with the bullies, right? Yeah, Her that's true. ex-boyfriend, you, you had to have some sort of resolution and they chose to have a parking lot brawl out of it. I think that's great. Let's kick a little butt. Let's get these guys out of here. Let's do a big karate kick to the face. And, uh, and then let's go dance. That's it. Let's dance. Side note, Elmore City, first prom theme was Stairway to Heaven. Nice. I don't know if there's any breakdancing going on. I don't think breakdancing was a thing yet in 1980. I think it was like 82 so. that breakdancing really started. That's the type of information you get here at the Shirley You Can't Be Serious. There product. you go. Nowhere else will you find that information. Yes. All right. Let's flip back to Purple Rain. Okay. Reception. Here is where the match hits the fuse of the megaton bomb that becomes Purple Rain. So you have When Doves Cry is released as a single and a video May 16th of 1984. And I can tell you from experience, it was the song of the summer of 84. The album drops a month and a half later, June 25th, 1984. And then on July 16th, 1984, When Doves Cry is the number one song in the country. That's when they release Let's Go Crazy, July 16th. And then the movie drops July 27th, 1980. When they have the Hollywood premiere of the movie, everyone shows up. It's crazy. Like, it's a red carpet event. You've got Eddie Murphy. You've got Prince in all his purple wonderfulness. It is a huge, huge event. It is. It is. Let me back up a second. I got a little bit ahead of myself. Okay. So, when they finished the movie, they screened it. For Warner Brothers. Okay. Okay. They showed it after the first screening. Everybody thought it was a dud. Zoinks. What? So Magnolia said, listen, this movie is going to do $40 million. Don't kill this movie. If you do, it will be a travesty against art. Let this movie live. And he kind of had that pounding thing. He said, here's what you do. Here's your marketing campaign. You put an ad in every paper saying Warner Brothers presents Prince in his first motion picture, Purple Rain in every major city that has a black community. They test it in Culver City, California. The numbers were so far through the roof that they accused the producer of stacking the deck. 
<laughs> they're like, this is bogus. This is bull. You called all your friends. So what we're going to do is we're going to screen it two other places and we're not going to tell you where we're going to do it. So they screened it in Denver and in San Diego and the same thing happened. Numbers through the roof. They had to show up multiple times because people would come back and want to watch it again. Yeah. And so they were like, well, this is crazy. I, we don't get it, but it's, it's on fire. Right. So that's when they decided, Warner Brothers decided to put on 900 screens worldwide and it made close to $70 million that summer. That's awesome. By the way, if you get a chance to go back and look at that MTV premiere, yeah, it's super cool. All right. So normally this is the point where we would go into the soundtracks of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it, man. I'm ready to talk music. Next week. <laughs> These two albums are too big to make a single part of some other show. You've got to come back. We will talk Footloose next week. We will talk Purple Rain, the album, the week after that. And then we will give you our final judgment. What's the best movie? What's the best album? It's going to be amazing. We're going to go track by track. You're going to learn things about these songs that you never knew. Come back next week. <laughs> <laughs>